Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping today at 10.30 a.m., Thursday, January 10th. As always, news happens fast, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Margot Sanger-Katz in the New York Times. Good morning and Happy New Year. Rebecca Adams of CQ Roll Call. Thanks for having me. And Anna Edney of Bloomberg News. Hi, everybody. We also have our latest Bill of the Month interview with KHN senior correspondent Jordan Rao. Our patient this month broke her leg skiing, and then the plate put in to stabilize the fracture broke as well, and she had to pay her own share of the second surgery. And one more reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. every Sunday. But first, the news, and there is plenty of it. Uh, Let's start by catching people up on that Texas lawsuit, the one that held that the Affordable Care Act, now lacking a tax penalty to enforce its individual mandate, is unconstitutional in its entirety. There was a lot of activity around this over the holidays uh, and in the first days of the new Democratic Congress. Who wants to bring us up to date? I'd be happy to jump in. Sure. So on December 14th, Friday night, uh, Judge Reed O'Connor of the Northern District of Texas decided to issue a ruling saying that the health care law was invalid because, as you mentioned, um, the requirement that most people get insurance or pay a fine had been struck by Congress. And so he said without that central part of the law, then the rest of it would have to fall. And so there was a flurry of activity. Um, The uh, group of states Uh, led by California, filed an appeal. Um, The House has voted on its first day to intervene in that lawsuit um, and has come back with additional activity on that as well. Um, So we're seeing a lot going on. we also saw the Justice Department come and ask for a stay because of the shutdown. So, right. So the Justice Department is closed. We'll talk about that more in a minute. Right, right. But so they say, yeah, they can't do this work because they're not working. That's right. That's right. So we're going to see a lot on this in Congress over the next year. Um, the House voted on its first day uh, to come in and, and intervene. Then, and then they, they voted, decided. Yeah, they voted again. <laughs> yeah. Yes, they came in. Um, Uh, this week and decided to vote again because, you know, you just can't hear this message enough. You have to talk about pre-existing conditions as much as possible. So I kind of feel like maybe we're going to see a lot of votes on this the way we saw a lot of votes to repeal the health care law back when Republicans controlled Congress. So uh, stay tuned. We'll see a lot. Although, you know, Nick Bagley, who we quote a lot here on this podcast, Mm -hmm. who's a law professor at the University of Michigan, is infuriated by the idea that the House Democrats want to intervene in the lawsuit. He said that that what they, he says, A, they don't have standing, which goes back to the whole fight over the cost sharing reductions Mm -hmm. from 2016 and 2017. But besides, they could fix the problem by passing a bill. And yet they don't seem to want to. They just seem to want to to sort of point fingers at Republicans at this point. And even um, Republican Greg Walden, um, the congressman, um, the, the from former, Oregon, right, the, the former, former chairman yeah. of the House Energy and Commerce right, Committee. Right, exactly. He um, he's behind. He's talked about that idea too. Um, you know, passing legislation to protect pre-existing conditions specifically. So you know, to kind of 
get at this lawsuit. Um, so it's interesting that we aren't seeing the Democrats embracing that as something moving forward. Although the Republican plan, the, the, at least the original Walden plan, right, would, it wouldn't have really it protected people. Protected. Yeah, they'd have to they'd have to come up with something that would you know obviously satisfy Democrats as well. But um, you know who knows. You know, what Nick Bagley is talking about is this mismatch between like, okay, this is the lawsuit is saying that the congressional intent was that these parts of the law couldn't be taken apart. Congress can fix that. That's one mismatch between what they're doing and what the ruling is saying. But I also think a lot of these fights about pre-existing conditions as if it's like a discrete issue were the strategies were sort of developed before the ruling actually came down. And what the judge said is actually much more sweeping than just pre-existing conditions. He said that the entirety of the Affordable Care Act uh, was made invalid by this change to the penalty for people who don't have insurance. And so that actually has really far-reaching consequences. We're not just talking about pre-existing conditions protections anymore. We're talking about the Medicaid expansion, subsidies for middle-income people who buy their own insurance, uh, changes to to the way that Medicare pays doctors and hospitals and insurance companies, uh, funding for uh, large parts of uh, the healthcare system, uh, regulations on food labeling, on uh, you know pharmaceutical payments to doctors and generic hospitals. Bi- biologic drugs, the funding for the Indian Health Service. I believe. I mean, there is yes. you know uh, rules about how workplaces have to accommodate uh, lactating mothers. There is a lot in the Affordable Care Act, which you remember from covering it. I mean, it's uh, it was a big piece of health legislation. Uh, we tend to focus on the parts of it that have to do with coverage in the individual market. That's sort of like, I think, our kind of shorthand when we say the Affordable Care Act, we say Obamacare, people think we're talking just about that. And I think there was an expectation that the judge's ruling was really going to mostly focus on that part of the law. That is not what he did. Uh, So that's like another weird thing about what's happening in Congress. And uh, I think like one other broader point that occurs to me in the context of this lawsuit is that it feels like the Trump administration is not all the way on one page about this. On the one hand, the Justice Department has essentially not disputed uh, the sort of major argument being made by these Republican states that this part of the Affordable Care Act is unconstitutional and that at least major parts of the law ought to be overturned. Uh, At the same time, it seems like the Health and Human Services Department, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, the parts of the government that actually administer these programs have been extremely eager to reassure everyone that they are going to continue to enforce the law, that they believe it to be the law of the land while this lawsuit is pending. And of course, that's true in sort of a procedural way. But I felt like their enthusiasm for expressing that message uh, was was interesting and I think shows that – they recognize the gravity of what the judge's decision would mean if it were to go into effect. This is not a kind of small marginal change. This is a big change that would rock the whole healthcare system. And, and I wrote a story about this about a week after the decision came down that it wouldn't. Yeah, it, it's way more than you think. It's the Affordable Care Act is a foundation for an enormous number of regulations that the Department of Health and Human Services puts out on every conceivable way that, that people get paid for health care. Well, remember, it's a fifth of the economy. It could literally bring the entire health care system to a screeching halt. And I think that's what kind of freaked out HHS because they know that, even though a lot of other people have not internalized it yet. But I imagine that they will as this uh, this fight continues, and this fight will definitely continue. Um, so I want to talk about the government shutdown uh, or partial shutdown, to be more accurate. As we have discussed around this table several times, the vast majority of the Department of Health and Human 
Services had its full-year funding bill signed into law in September before the fiscal year started. But there are health programs that are impacted by the shutdown, most notably the Food and Drug Administration, which even though it's part of HHS, is funded in the Agriculture Appropriations Bill. Also, the Indian Health Service, also part of uh, Health and Human Services, is funded with the rest of Native American programs in the Interior Appropriations Bills. So what are we hearing about the impact that the shutdown is having on these agencies? And I think you just you just wrote something about the FDA. Well, the FDA um, is interesting. So uh, there was a lot of talk um, the other day about their stopping routine food inspections. Um, so these are of you know places that make and package food to to send out um, to like your grocery stores or things like that and restaurants. And so um, they. I even talked with the commissioner a little bit um, and am still slightly confused as to whether stopping is the right way to talk about this or they – but they're trying – what they're trying to do is set up a plan so they can continue doing high-risk food inspections. Um, and these are domestic. They're still doing the foreign ones, those they're still allowed to do. Um, but the domestic ones, they have high to, risk are things that are likely to be contaminated. Right. So the, like soft cheese or like we've had all this, these romaine outbreaks, um, things like that, that are more likely to, to carry some sort of contamination. It's So I think they said they do about 8,400 food inspections a year and about a third of those they consider high risk. So they're working to try to continue the high risk ones um, in some fashion. So they may need to bring some workers back pretty soon. So these are furloughed workers who will they won't get paid when they come back still, but they'll have to come back and work. Um, the FDA also, you know, um, Scott Gottlieb said last week that he, the agency only has about a month left of what they call user fees um, from the industry that funds their drug review process. So those are for new drug approvals that companies will turn in these applications. They have to pay the FDA a pretty hefty sum, a couple million dollars to get that reviewed. They won't be able to – they can't accept new user fees. So in about a month, they're going to run out of those user fees. I didn't realize that. Yeah. yeah I, that's, and, the shorthand is always, well, most, not most, but more than half of FDA is funded by these user fees and not by regular appropriations. But right. I didn't realize they couldn't accept the money. Yeah, they can't get new – they can't take new ones, so they're going to have to stop those new drug reviews views pretty soon um, as well if this continues for a long time. And, and I think they're shifting money from new drug reviews to post-market surveillance because they're worried about that being a consumer safety issue. Um, so it's interesting because if you step back for a moment, most of HHS is continuing without any problems. As, as Julie mentioned, most of HHS was, was funded. Um, and even at the agencies that are affected by the shutdown, 76% of the workers are still on the job. They're but, just not being paid. Right. Exactly. Um, so, and but I think it, it varies by agency. Um, at FDA, I think it's about 41% are furloughed. Um, at the Indian Health Service, only like 5% because there are exceptions in the law that say that if you're providing direct services to protect life, then you can continue. But the people who are furloughed are performing some pretty important jobs. I mean, we all want our food to be safe. We all want new drugs to be reviewed. You may, we can have lots of 
political and philosophical debates about the cost of drugs later and other things. But we want FDA to do its job. Um, over at NIH, we want people to look at Superfund research. That's a, another division that's affected. At CDC, we want to know about toxic substances that might be hazardous to our health. So I think that even though it's a small percentage, very small percentage of HHS that's affected, we have to think about what these jobs are and how important they are. And also other agencies in the government Thank you, perform functions that relate to human health. So, you know, EPA, for example, is part of the shutdown, and they do a lot of monitoring of toxic chemicals, uh, you know, making sure that water and air are safe uh, to the degree that those functions are not carried out and that contaminants are entering our environment that could make people sick, uh, even if... Maybe their Medicare will still pay for their treatment for that sickness. And even, I mean, things like the parks are, I mean, there are, there are health and safety issues that are going on by, you know, leaving the national parks open but having them unstaffed. I think there were a couple of people who actually died in some national parks uh, since the shutdown began um, because the park rangers aren't working even. Though. I think they're closing some parks because of that, um, also because the the trash cans and bathrooms are overflowing. But it's, it is, it does, even though HHS is largely open and, and people are on the job, there are definitely health impacts from the shutdown. Uh, so next item, new year, new Congress, lots of new ideas. In two states, at least two states, and in New York City, chief executives are talking up ways they intend to expand coverage to their constituents. Uh, let's start with California and brand new Governor Gavin Newsom. He wasted no time talking about health care. He made promises in his inaugural address. What's he going to prioritize, and do we think this is going to happen? Margo, you. I think the Newsom proposal is really interesting for a couple of reasons. But the main thing that interests me about it is, you know, we are about to enter a new kind of intra-party Democratic debate about what is the future of healthcare policy going to look like. We know from the past few years that there are certain prominent Democratic politicians who are very interested in single payer versions of Medicare for all. Uh, expansion of these kind of big public programs to encompass more people and a smaller role for private insurance. Uh, what Governor Newsom has proposed is actually something different for the most part. He put out a number of proposals that remind me an awful lot of Hillary Clinton's campaign platform. So I think the most interesting of the things that he's proposed is expanding subsidies uh, for individual market plans for people sort of higher up the income scale. So what, 600 percent, I think? Start, yeah. So the Affordable Care Act caps subsidies at 400 percent of the federal poverty limit. So that's like about a little less than $50,000 a year for an individual person, a little bit less than $100,000 a year for a family of four, to give you an idea. And these these plans can get quite expensive. You know, it's not unusual that people would be paying more than ten or $15,000 even for a family plan. So if you're someone uh, who is earning in that neighborhood, there are real affordability issues. We have seen that there have been people dropping out of coverage. It looks like this year some of those people are transitioning into short-term plans, other kinds of less comprehensive but cheaper options. So that is a public policy concern. What do we do about those people? And the numbers have not yet been made public uh, as of Thursday when we're talking. But uh, what Governor Newsom has proposed is let's let's give subsidies to people who make more money, up to 600 percent of the federal poverty limit, and that may improve affordability, bring more people into the market, and potentially lower premiums by kind of increasing the pool, bringing more uh, healthy people in. So I think that's really interesting. At the same time, he also sent a letter to uh, federal policymakers, both to the White House and to congressional leaders of both parties. And he said, 
take the shackles off. Please pass some kind of law that will allow a state like California to get lots of money from the federal government to pursue different policies that would uh, achieve various goals that may be similar to the Affordable Care Act. And I have to say that if you read that letter um, closely, it actually sounds an awful lot like what Republican lawmakers were trying to achieve last year, where they were trying to convert the existing Affordable Care Act funding streams into block grants for states. So what the Republican lawmakers wanted to do was basically say, okay, state of California, you're getting X dollars now for Medicaid, Y dollars now for the individual market subsidies. Let's you know, kind of squash them together. Uh, hand you a blank check with a couple of rules, you know, that you have to use the money for health care, you know, various goals you have to achieve with the money. But, you know, we're going to trust you, California, to come up with the best possible system. And we know that California will do something different than Missouri is going to do. Uh, that's, that's sort of a little bit like what California is asking for, except, of course, what they're also asking for is for the federal government to give them more money than they're getting now, whereas the Republican bill, of course, would have given them less. Yeah, well, we'll see. All right. So so meanwhile, we'll add to this. Uh, in Washington, Governor Jay Inslee, who, who may or may not be running for president, wants to create a public option. So that's yet yet another idea on the table. How would that work? Well, he put $500,000 aside in his budget, which has to be approved, um, to create this public option. They've had something similar in Washington before. Um, and I think we're going to continue to see states in, in blue um, states that are run um, by, by democratic liberal, governors, yes, liberal <laughs> folks, look at these sort of things because of the gridlock in Washington. Um, California was interesting. Washington was interesting. Also, New York City's mayor, Bill de Blasio, came out with a different proposal that he wants to do to expand coverage to undocumented immigrants. So um, a couple of things to remember is that None of these things are going to happen tomorrow. In all of these cases, we're talking about 2021 when these things would be taking effect. Fully. Although, presumably, I mean, the public option might be might be they're they're moving forward. They may try Washington. to get insurers to put in bids, but in terms of it actually being fully implemented, he was saying it would take a little while. Um, and a lot of these things have to be approved by the state legislatures. The exception, one big exception, is California with the executive order for um, a a single purchasing pool for drugs, which was something that was in Governor Newsom's plan. And it's a big deal because of the influence and size of California. I mean, 13 million people would be in this at, at a minimum. So it's pretty interesting um, in the sense that they would be moving their pharmacy benefit to a fee-for-service plan and sort of achieving the purchasing clout that that um, you know Democrats in Washington have talked about with regard to Medicare, they, they, everybody, all the Democrats are talking about doing more to try to negotiate with drug companies. So I think um, as 2020 approaches, we will definitely see a lot more activity on the state level. I'm interested, though, this is sort of the, you know, let a thousand flowers bloom, because these are all, they're basically all attempts to get more people covered, get more people covered more efficiently, sort of in the case of New York. And try to, to mitigate, if not lower, prices. I think that's the idea of the public option is that if you had sort of a nonprofit, you know, public insurance as, as a one possibility that it would help, it would sort of force the private companies to try to bring down their prices. Um, so it, it looks like, you know, Democrats are about as divided on health care as Republicans, right? 
Yeah, I think they they are they are divided, and I I think the three um, governors that we're talking about certainly want to two make governors their, and a mayor. <laughs> well, sorry, two governors and a mayor. You're right. Um, they want to make their mark on healthcare and you know get out there more in the the public sphere and possibly run for higher office and things like that. So um, I think what they're trying to do is is make their mark on on healthcare because it is going to be a 2020 and beyond debate, um, as Margot mentioned, that we're trying to, you know, that the Democrats are trying to figure out what Medicare for all actually will look like. And this could be kind of examples. I mean, think of like Massachusetts with with Romney care and, and things like that, where, you know, that kind of gets looked at as like, oh, that sort of was the, the precursor to Obamacare. I think it also reflects, I think in some ways it reflects the different political preferences of these governors to some of the kind of liberal crusaders in Congress who want to go kind of more of a single payer route. But I think it also reflects the limitations that state governments face. So I think state governments face a certain urgency that we're like, we got to make these markets work in our states. We have people who are uncovered who we really want to take care of. We've got to take action now. At the same time, I think we saw a number of states that sort of looked at single payer and single payer like ideas in the past. You know, Vermont. Vermont <laughs> is the example of a state that came the closest and kind of walked up to the line and saw how expensive and difficult it would be and said, oh, no, we can't do that. Uh, but California also, the California state legislature, you know, took a hard look at single payer in recent years. And I think for complicated reasons, but some of the same ones just said, oh, this is really hard for a state to do without assistance from the federal government. Well, they would need to get their hands on Medicare money. Yeah. Which... And they would have to get their hands on ERISA. So yeah. the, the law that allows large self-insured employer plans to basically be exempted from any state regulation of insurance. That's a lot of people out there in the market if they don't have to follow the rules. It's really hard to have a single payer that plan that does not include those people. Uh, and the people on Medicare. Yeah. yeah those are, you know, those are, I those keep are some large, large groups. Um, ERISA, Medicare. Other than that, go ahead, state, do your single payer plan. <laughs> so, you know, it's not total. I mean, you know, I, I don't want to make too much of this difference between what state leaders want to do and what federal leaders want to do, because I do think Congress actually does have the power to change the way the Medicare money works, to change the rules about uh, self-insured employer plans. And obviously, you know, the governor of Washington state does not have power over those things. The governor of California, as large a state as California is, does not have power over those things. But I still think, as Anna said, you know, these are the laboratories of democracy. The biggest, most recent, you know, real overhaul of the healthcare system came after a state demonstrated that something worked. And so I do think that we need to keep an eye on these states if they can achieve these plans. I have my doubts about all of them being uh, able to be implemented in precisely the way the leaders are proposing, but they're definitely worth watching. All right. Well, one more bit of news. Um, we got final numbers, really final numbers, sort of, this time for people who signed up for insurance at the Federal Insurance Exchange, healthcare.gov, for this this year, 2019. So 11.3 million people signed up, which is down, but only about 4%, with a couple of weeks to go in some big states, because that number also includes the states that run their own exchanges. California is still open among uh, other states. What happened to the idea that the exchanges were going to collapse without the, the mandate? It's always worth waiting for the numbers to come in. I mean, you know, we and I feel like it's like this caveat. We've said it a million times here. Everyone writes it in their articles. Uh, but, you know, the traditional pattern is that lots of people sign up at the end and get close to the deadline. And I think that there were reasons why last year 
the enrollment was a little bit more weighted towards the beginning of the enrollment period because last year was a weird year. Uh, this year is more similar, and so there's less reason for people to sort of shop early and uh, switch around their plans. And so the kind of timing of when people signed up for things looked more normal. And so it meant that even though there was kind of depressed numbers early, the kind of late surge made up for it. But I still think, you know, we're now looking at the second year in a row of essentially kind of declining enrollment, not huge declines, but small declines. And so, you know, that overall pattern is worth watching. I think the crafters of the Affordable Care Act uh, imagined that the number of people in this market would be growing in this period would be substantially larger than it is right now. And the smallness of it, I think, particularly in some states, is going to be a challenge going forward for the viability and the affordability in the market. That's a good point. The Congressional Budget Office back in 2010 had imagined a huge market for the individual marketplace at this point. And well, because they the... thought that employers would drop – employers who weren't required to offer coverage would drop their coverage and send people to the individual market where mm-hmm. most of them could get a subsidy. And that hasn't materialized. I think that just the stability, though – I mean, you can look at subsidies as one factor. People want insurance and those who qualify for subsidies, which is 85 percent of the population, need – you know, they're getting a good deal. Um the people who are not getting such a good deal are those over four times the poverty level. So their their numbers are declining. Um, and we'll see what happens going forward. I mean, the individual mandate penalty disappeared on January 1st. So that may not have a huge impact at this point. We'll see. But um, it, it's interesting just to see all of the different factors that play into this. I wonder if anybody has actually polled people who signed up, asking them if they knew that there was no more mandate penalty. I, the Kaiser Family Foundation did do a poll just of the general public about what awareness right. of the uh, end of the mandate penalty and it was. was. And it was really low. Mm-hmm. I think it was like a third of people knew that it had gone away. There, I think that there are Anytime you pull on this question, do you, is this provision in effect, the awareness of it is is not uh, that close to 100 percent. I think the last time they asked, it was like maybe like two thirds of people knew it existed. So, you know, and that was a challenge for the mandate working, right, that people didn't know it was there. So now they don't know it's gone. It might take a while for them to figure that out. <laughs> That's what I think, too. And, and one thing I also do remember is that a lot of these people are automatically enrolled. You know, if you don't do anything, you get automatically enrolled again. So the government helps you out with that. Yeah. And sorry, just like one last aside, which is most of the people who earn more than 400 percent of the federal poverty level are not counted in this count. So there are people who earn more who buy their own insurance. Because they're buying it outside of the exchange. They buy it outside of the exchange. But because of the way the ACA is set up, there's something that's called a single risk pool. So those people, their enrollment and their health status and their age matter for everyone in this market. It is, you know... We kind of have like intense data about like over here, we're like looking at like this half of the market. We know everything about how many people have signed up in what week, in what state, at what level of income, at what kind of plan they bought. And we can sort of analyze that all day long. Over here, there's like a whole other half of the market that is basically invisible to us, that estimates about it are kind of crummy. For the first time, HHS actually gave us a number of how many people were in this market last year. Or maybe it was the year before. I, I think, think it, it was lags. the year before. There, there are some people. I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out how many people are in the individual market. So, there so are some it, private uh, analytics firms. But, that, there, it's, it's but terrible. Those, it ranges widely. I have spent yeah. a lot of time. I was really excited when HHS actually put out these numbers. So we'll find out sometime in the future what that half of the market looks like. I just think just because we can't see it doesn't mean that we shouldn't care about it. And those are the people who are most affected by changes in the price of insurance, uh, prices 
did not increase as much this year as they have in the past. They sort of held steady and even went down in some places. But, you know, the level of price was already quite high. And I do think that it's hard for people in that market. And we, those are the people who you might imagine would be more affected by the individual mandate as they weigh their options and more affected potentially by the availability of more loosely regulated plans. So, yeah. So we'll, it will be some, some weeks or months before we see what really happened to the individual market. That's, I guess, yeah, what we're seeing here, mostly people who are getting subsidies and they mostly continued to sign up. All right. So that is the news for this week. Now, here is our Bill of the Month interview with KHN's Jordan Rao. If you have a medical bill you'd like to submit for the series we're doing with NPR, I will post the link on the podcast page at khn.org. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast my colleague Jordan Rao, senior correspondent for Kaiser Health News, who wrote the latest Bill of the Month story. Hello, Jordan. Hi. So this month's patient is Sarah Witter, and she had a skiing accident, yes? Yes, that's right. She was uh, going downhill, as one tends to do on skis, um, and she fractured one of her legs and went into uh, the emergency room, and they put in two metal plates. And this was at a place that's used to doing this, right? Yes. It's at a ski resort very close to a major ski mountain in Vermont. And so they put in the two metal plates. They put in the two metal plates, and then she uh, went back to recuperate homes, tried to stay off the weight. Um, but then she started having pain about three months or so later and went back in, and it turned out that one of the plates had fractured, had broken, and they had to replace it. Meaning another whole surgery. Exactly. Same surgery, except for this time you take it out and they put in um, one of the plates didn't break, um, but they put in another plate that ended up being more expensive because it was bigger. And then she was super surprised to realize that the whole thing in total, she was had to pay not only for the first surgery, but the second one and including all the therapy and getting off the mountain. It was uh, almost one hundred thousand dollars. And how much was she asked to pay? She ended up being asked to pay eighteen thousand dollars for one leg, one leg, two surgeries. Right. So. And her her problem here, of course, was that why should she pay for the second surgery, right? That's right. She was sort of flabbergasted to, um, you know, and the surgeon told her, hey, you know, this is nothing that you did. Um, there's a bunch of things that, that patients can do wrong and not adhering to their, you know, to, to keeping the pressure off the leg. But um, she was like, why do I have to pay for this um, second thing um, and have a second surgery when I was doing everything right? And what was the response from either the hospital and or her insurer? Uh, the response is that's the way it works in healthcare. that it's not anything like, uh, you know, going to, well, I guess Sears is bankrupt now, but going to, uh, you know, department store and uh, getting a new, um, a new uh, washer dryer. Or there's no lemon law, you know, if your car breaks and, uh, you know, just after you buy it, that there's nothing like that, that it really is um, in, with the exception of a couple of very narrow exemptions when um, a hospital or a surgeon has really done something glaringly wrong. And for some complicated pieces of medical equipment, there really isn't any warranties or anything. And you just, you know, that's just the cost of doing business for you, the consumer. Now, the insurance company paid its share of the second surgery, right? Yes. The insurance company actually paid fairly generously, um, given that this was an out-of-network hospital, which was a whole other uh, problem for her. But the insurance company paid, uh, she had pretty good insurance. It's a commercial plan through Aetna. Um, and, you know, obviously, if she'd gone in on her own and didn't have insurance, she would have been responsible for the whole thing. And in the end, she got a refund of some of what she was asked to pay. 
Yeah, this is right. So, so we, you know, our story was mostly about this second surgery and what happens when a medical device failed. When we called the insurer to ask about this, they noticed something different, which is a problem that keeps on cropping up, which is balanced billing. That um, because this hospital was out of network, she had been billed above what the insurer thought um, she should have to pay and it should have to pay. And so uh, the insurer reached out to the hospital and they talked about this and mutually decided to refund that difference to her, which turned out to be about $6,000. But she still has to pay uh, $12,000. So, yeah. So it's still a pretty expensive broken leg. It is very expensive, yeah. And no one ever addressed her her initial complaint, which is, if this thing just failed, why should I have to pay for it? Or why should I and my insurance company have to pay for it? That never really got resolved, right? No. There was no um, no sense that this was anyone's responsibility for that. And, it, the, you know, the for the doctors, when they get these devices, and these are expensive devices. I mean, the hospital obviously marks them up a lot, but they were, you know, um, 7000 or $12,000, depending on which one. They're very expensive. They come with a long list of caveats that are, you know, sort of like what's on medications. You know, it's like, this thing may not work. If you do this wrong, it may not work. If uh, you implant it wrong, you may not work. And, you know, again, unless it comes out of the box broken, a manufacturer of a device isn't going to say, you know, whoops, are bad. So I loved her closing advice, which was don't break your leg. But seriously, is there anything people who are getting implantable devices can do to possibly not go through what she went through? I don't think there's anything particular. You really are sort of out of luck. But the one thing that that I didn't know that came out in this story is that some of the large insurers do have patient advocacy processes. And if you say um, and really make a stink and have your ducks in a row and say, you know, I really think I'm being ripped off by this provider um, – they say that they will go and go to bat for you. That's what happened here. Now, you know, you have to ask yourself, would Aetna have done this if it wasn't a story that was being prominently featured, you know, on KHN and NPR? But um, they do have these processes in place. And so the notion of going to your insurer and and really asking to press them, you know, can be, um, you know, useful. Well, I'm going to be very careful with my legs. I think that's a good idea. (laughs) Jordan Rao, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Okay, we are back, and it's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read, too. Do not worry. If you miss it, we will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org. Who wants to go first? Anna, you have a story that's sort of related to the bill of the month, right? Right, yeah. So mine is from the Washington Post. Um, It's the FDA is letting doctors implant untested devices into our bodies. This is by Jean Lenzer and Shannon Brownlee. Um, It takes a look. So maybe a month or so ago, there was a big investigation into how the FDA approves medical devices. Um, Essentially, a lot of them are untested. Um, They just have to show that they work similarly to another drug or another device that's on the market. And, you know, that seemingly lets a lot of dangerous things get put into patients. And so then the FDA announced all of these changes they were going to make, except the, the authors argue those are window dressing um, and go through a lot of a lot of kind of what the FDA proposed and why it isn't as big of a deal as the FDA tried to make it out to be. I just wanted to read one paragraph from there because it really stuck with me um, that kind of gives you an idea of 
what's going on at the FDA. It says, part of the problem lies in whom the agency believes it serves. At a recent meeting in Utah, the FDA's device director repeatedly referred to manufacturers as the agency's, quote, customers, and a slide proclaiming 90% customer satisfaction. Another slide documented the agency's shorter and shorter approval times over the past eight years. These might not be the priorities of patients and taxpayers if they knew how often devices go on to harm people. That was quite a story. Rebecca. So I chose Life, Death, and Insulin in the Washington Post magazine. This was a look at an individual who was affected by the high cost of insulin. And it talked about how three companies which manufacture insulin have ratcheted up these prices. They've tripled in the past decade. It's an issue that's gotten congressional attention. There are lawsuits involved. But it really personalized it because it talked about this young this young 20-something, 27-year-old, I think, um, who... Yeah, because he just went off his, his parents' plan. Went right? off yeah. his parents, yes. His his mother um, had him on her work insurance. And then when he when he aged out because, under the health care law requirements, he had to get his own insurance. And he tried to buy insurance on the individual market. And it was incredibly expensive, a $7,000 deductible, as we see in a lot of these plans. And he made $35,000 a year, so he didn't get a subsidy. And so he starts rationing his insulin. And he says, he tells his mom, oh, it can't be that bad. And then the story says, within a month, he was dead. And it was just heartbreaking and indicative of the broader issues around drug costs. Margot. I wanted to draw our attention to an article from our friend Sarah Cliff uh, at Vox.com. A 20 thousand two hundred I'm sorry twenty thousand two hundred forty three dollar bike crash Zuckerberg hospitals aggressive tactics leave patients with big bills and this is part of her ongoing project looking at emergency room bills and she found uh, something that it was I have to say fairly shocking and surprising to me which is uh, Zuckerberg hospital that's Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook who has given 75 million dollars to this public hospital San in Francisco San Francisco general <laughs> yeah that's sort of the big famous public hospital in San Francisco so San Francisco General Hospital is the only level one trauma center in San Francisco so that means if something really bad happens to you and you require trauma care or trauma surgery that is where they ha- the ambulance has to take you. This hospital has a blanket policy, Sarah learned, of not accepting any private insurance. They do not negotiate with any private insurance companies. They do not accept any in-network payments from them. So they do treat people who have Medicaid, who have public insurance of various sorts, who are uninsured. They treat them at highly subsidized rates, and they say that that is tied to their mission. But if you have a job and you have insurance through your job and you have the misfortune of being in a accident or ha- having some other ailment that requires you go to a level one trauma center or where the ambulance driver just doesn't realize uh, that you should go to a different hospital that might take your insurance, you could end up with absolutely enormous bills. And uh, there were two things about this article that I just think are worth commending. Um, one is I have never heard of this policy before of any hospital just declining to deal with any insurance company. Of course, hospitals sometimes, you know, pick and choose. They make a deal with one insurer and not the other. And if you are someone who is out of network, that can be quite costly for you. And we've talked about that before. But the idea of not even trying to do business with any of them feels very unprecedented, even though a spokesman for the hospital told Sarah that this is a totally normal practice. It is not a normal practice. But also, 
In addition to being out of network for all of these uh, insurance companies, this is a hospital that is charging extraordinarily high prices. So this bill that she mentions in the headline, this $20,000 bill, is for a woman who broke her arm. Um, and, and she did have surgery, right? She did have surgery, but she was charged a price that was 12 times as much as what Medicare uh, pays for that same condition. So uh, just... Really surprising uh, and interesting. And I do wonder uh, how this hospital is going to defend itself against the sort of furor that uh, her article has kicked up. Yeah, this was sort of the wow story of the week. Well, uh, my story is also about hospitals, about Catholic hospitals. It's from Rewire News, a reproductive health online news service. It's called There's Almost No Data About What Happens When Catholic Hospitals Deny Reproductive Care by Amy Littlefield. And it's about exactly what the headline says. Today, one in six hospital beds is in a Catholic hospital, yet only one-third of female Catholic hospital patients know that the hospital is Catholic and therefore uh, does not provide a broad array of health services, not just abortion, uh, that the hospitals um, must cannot provide under church rules. What the story is about, though, is the fact that there's basically no research on what happens to women who don't get abortions or sterilizations or emergency contraception at Catholic health facilities. And with Catholic health growing, uh, particularly in rural areas where often there are no alternative sources of care, uh, maybe that's something that some researchers should think about looking at. Uh, So that is our show. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review on iTunes. That helps other people find us too. Also, as usual, you can email us your questions or comments. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Anna Edney. At Rebecca Adams-Stacey. At Sanger Katz. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.